Well, we are in part five of a series called The Seven Churches in Revelation. And it's a six-part series. How you do seven churches in six parts? Because today we're doing two churches because we're going to compare and contrast Sardis with Philadelphia. So we're going to do two churches this morning. Uh, but there is a, there's a book called Principle of the Path. And in the book, the, the, the big idea of the book is that direction... Not intention determines destination. Direction, not intention, determines destination. And that's, that's true. It's, it's pretty obvious that it's true when you think about it. I shared this uh, in January. We went to Buchanan. We, had a, we were at the Alliance Church there. And I, I shared with you how I got lost on the way. We were GPS in the, the church, and we had the wrong coordinates in our GPS, and we were following the direction, but they were just the wrong direction. We ended up in the middle of nowhere, away from the church, and then we lost uh, our cell phone service, so I lost my GPS. And then uh, we were trying to, I was trying to call Scott, because Scott, you know, grew up in that area, and he knew how to, uh, to get there, and no cell phone service. And so, I then let intentions take over. All right, which way do I think is the right way to go? And for about 20 or 30 minutes, I went a direction. It was completely the wrong direction, but my intentions were good the whole time. The whole time I thought, you know, in, this is true. Doesn't matter how good your intentions are if you're going the wrong direction. Do you know that? That's the, I had great intentions, but my intentions were irrelevant to getting me to the destination that I needed to get to. Now, I finally got there, but it's funny how that in our spiritual journey in other areas of life, we think that because we have good intentions, that that should land us in the place where we want to be. I mean, if the college students want to make a good grade, and they really want the A, and they have great intentions of studying, but they binge watch Netflix or play video games all day or social media or whatever, doesn't matter how good the intentions are, right? Without the direction that sets you to the destination, you're, you're not going to do very, very well. Same thing in relationships. There are a lot of people that have had some bad relationships and they're like, I need to do relationships right. And they have good intentions of wanting to do it right, but the direction they're taking is actually predictable that they're not going to end up in a good spot based on the decisions. Finances, it's the same thing, right? Direction, not intentions, determines destination. Well, this morning, I want to kind of overview all the seven churches. We talked about a lot of people view this as the church history, as, as different time periods in church history. And you can see and follow the direction that one church left the next church that's left the next church. And it's no wonder why the last church age that we'll get to next week uh, Laodicea is a lukewarm, confused uh, church, a church that's apostate in many ways. And you can see how it arrived there when you follow the direction of the churches. So here you can see these list of churches. We're going to walk through these. We're going to talk about the spiritual condition of each church and how it affected the next. So look, at uh, the Ephesus was the first one. So this is a little bit of an overview, but just if, if the churches were designed to be periods of history, in the church history, then Ephesus was about 100 A.D. The, the letter was written about 95 A.D. It was the loveless church. So that was the one that was experiencing. They were doing all the right things, but they lost 
their reason for doing it. They weren't loving God. They weren't loving others. And if they weren't loving others, well, it's no wonder that they experienced a lot of persecution, that, that people really hated Christians. And there was a season of time where they experienced severe persecution from 100 to 313 A.D. in history. That happened, especially the Roman emperors. There were 10 Roman emperors that severely persecuted Christianity. And then around 313, uh, you had Constantine that came in and persecution was removed from the church. Suddenly, Christians had freedom. The problem is what, what happened after the persecution was there. Before that, people who wanted to be Christians had to pay a significant price to follow Christ. You had to count the cost. There weren't ulterior motives. Christianity grew. It's funny. Do me a favor. Study. If you study religions, if you're curious or skeptical about Christianity, study Christianity compared to any other religion. And you could see that ulterior motives for every other religion that grew. But for Christianity, if you wanted to sign up to be a Christian first and second, third century, there was a significant cost. There wasn't, you didn't get fame, you didn't get fortune, you didn't get notoriety, you got persecution. And yet the church grew because there was this truth component. There was this re recognition that Christ rose from the dead. But then after there was freedom, it's like persecution has been removed from the church now people that were, weren't Christians yesterday suddenly were becoming, oh, I'm a Christian, but there was no regeneration, there was no conversion. There was just this, the political and, and national identity of, yes, you're, you're all Christians. There's, it's like me saying everyone in here is a Christian because you came to church, which isn't true. But that's the kind of the mindset that happened. So naturally, what happens to a church like that? Compromise. It became a compromised church for a season of history there was lack of discernment, which led to the next uh, Thyatira from 590 to 515. This is during the, the, the medieval history, uh, the Crusades and all these things. They did not discern uh, proper doctrine. There was a sense that the church became very corrupt. It went from being a compromised position to a position to where uh, people just didn't know what was true. They, they tolerated Jezebel, remember? There was false teaching. There were things that sounded good, and everybody was being seduced by that teaching and saying, all right. And there was a whole lot of false doctrine that surfaced during this season, um, which led to the church we're going to be talking about today, Sardis. Sardis was considered a lifeless church, and it's no wonder the torch, it's loveless, we're persecuted, we're compromising, and if we're compromising and then we're tolerating sin and we're being lenient, and then there's no power in the church suddenly. It's no wonder that by the time it gets to this period in history that Sardis is lifeless, powerless. It had just shifted from a relationship with God to just a religious entity superpower in our world. And it's funny because people will accuse Christianity of that because that's the only lens that they interpret Christianity through. And what's very ironic is that Jesus in 95 AD told John this was going to happen. He's like, look, this is not what I want, but this, you could see they're passing the torch. This is the direction that it is taking them to, a lifeless place, a powerless place. Now, some wonderful things happened during this period. Uh, there was also the Reformation that takes place during here. And we'll see as we study this letter this morning, Sardis had a faithful few that were true to Christ. And then we have uh, Philadelphia. And opinions vary on the time frame on this, but about 750 to about the 1900s, 1920, 
Um, the, it was the obedient church. There was a season of a great awakening that took place in church history during this season. This is a season where A.B. Simpson, uh, also our founder, was born, and the Christian Missionary Alliance Church became in, into being. But there's a lot of other wonderful things. You got Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, these different uh, awakenings that happened across our country, and there was a spiritual revival that took place. And then the last one I'm not going to get into much. I'll let Will do that next week But Laodicea. It's no wonder, as you see, we've passed the torch that there's now a confused church. The church age that we live in today is one that's not hot or cold, but lukewarm, confused, not sure what truth is. And you could see, if you look at church history, why we ended up in the place we're ended up today, where people are so confused. There's compromise. There's been so much direction, wrong direction given to the church, handed down over the years, that there's no wonder we're in the place that we are today, which is all the more reason why we need to study the Word of God, seek God, and make sure that we're heeding to these letters. Revelation tells us that there is a blessing that comes from reading this book and praying that God would help you discern the content of it. So this morning, we're going to look at Philadelphia versus Sardis, and we're going to compare the two churches, and then we're going to talk about at the end, I want to talk about two ways that we can drift towards being a church like Sardis and two ways that we drift towards being a church like Philadelphia. I'm not going to spend as much time doing the background on the churches for the sake of time, but read them. There's a lot of good commentaries out there. You could, you could search and get the history on it, but I'm going to really just stick more to content this morning and some of the topics that are covered. But we're going to pick up in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 3 and look what Christ says to the church at Sardis. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Let me clarify something just out the gate. Uh, if you study the Bible, you'll see the number seven a lot. In the beginning in Revelation 1, it talks about uh, having the seven spirits. This is just a representing a number of completion. There are seven stars, seven candlesticks. The the candlesticks represent the churches. The stars represent the angels or the messengers of the church. The seven spirits of God just represents the fullness of the spirit of God in Christ. Um, if you look at Isaiah, I think it's 11 too, it talks about uh, the spirit of God, a spirit of wisdom and counsel and knowledge and might and these seven different attributes of God's spirit. But it's just saying that the completeness of God, the spirit of God is on Christ. And so that's what that seven represents there. Uh, but this is, this is powerful because it's saying the one who has the fullness of the Spirit of God, the perfect wisdom and spirit inside of God is, is telling you this information. I want you to know that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. In, in other words, he's saying what people think is true of you isn't true of you. What, what, and you're getting your identity based on what people are thinking of you. But it's not. You think you're alive, but you're dead. Because people think that you're alive. And this is, I love this part too. Being dead is a pretty hopeless situation. Unless you're Jesus, then you could bring life into it, which is verse 2 says. Wake up. Even a, a dead situation isn't hopeless. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. 
Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will know at what hour I will come against you. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. This church was asleep spiritually and needed to wake up. Now, my wife had a dream. I think she's in the nursery right now. Good, she won't hear this story. Let's keep this a secret. Mm. Hi, honey. She's in the back. Uh. Oh, where do we go from here? Uh. Um. I wanted to share the chicken nugget story this morning. Um. My wife, she gets embarrassed at this story. Uh, she had a dream one time. Dreams are weird, and dreams are just dreams. Sometimes, God sometimes speaks through dreams, but sometimes dreams are just, you know, you ate too much pizza the night before, and what were you thinking? Well, she had a mentor in college, Sarah Stevenson, and, and she had this dream that Sarah Stevenson turned into a chicken nugget. And she was really hungry, and so she ate the chicken nugget. And then she woke up feeling really guilty that she ate the chicken nugget, that she ate Sarah Stevenson. And she kept it a secret for a long time because her guilt kept bothering her. And then finally she told Sarah I'm about the dream, and everybody else thought it was hilarious. And she literally felt guilty that she had a dream, that she let her hunger get the best of her, so she killed Sarah by eating her as a chicken nugget. Anyway, um, it's, it's kind of funny because she, she, she let the guilt and embarrassment of a dream affect her. It, it's, it's really funny to hear her tell the story because we're all laugh like, why? To me, it would be just clearly a dream, but it really bothered her that she had this dream. And that's why she was like, she's embarrassed of it, and I wasn't sure if I should share it, and she's might, I might be in trouble later. But. Uh, Here's the funny thing, though. Our dreams can feel like reality, don't they? They feel like reality, but when you're dreaming, it's not reality. But it feels like reality. But honestly, what happens when you're dreaming is you're missing reality. And a lot of times, what happens in the dream state can make you have the wrong impression of reality. And what Jesus is saying in this church is, I mean, you need to wake up. You're, you're completely, you're dreaming. Your thoughts about God and how he interacts is a dream state. It's affecting your reality. You need to wake up. You're not, in a, you're not living in the reality. You're asleep. And in your dreams, you're letting that, in that sense of who you think you are, or you, what you think is happening is affecting your reality, and you just need to wake up. Verse 4 says, Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments and they, that they will walk with me in white, and for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, just to summarize this church. This church looked most alive compared to the other churches. In other words, if you were having the seven churches, we had a map and, and you were going to travel at this time and you're like, all right, I, I want to go to one of these seven churches, Ephesus, Sardis, Thyatira, one of these places, Philadelphia, that if you were getting recommendations on which church to go to in Asia Minor at this time, everybody around would said Sardis. 
You want to go to Sardis. Sardis is where it's happening. That's the church that's most alive. That's the church we would recommend. That's the church that everybody's flocking to. That's the church that you need to go to. And Jesus is saying that's the one that's completely dead. The one that everyone else would refer to, the one that everyone would say that's the one that's most alive is the one that Jesus said, I'm the one who has the Spirit. I'm the one that could, could, could bring the Spirit into the service. The one that, that has the completeness of God is saying, nope, that one that everybody else thinks is most alive is the one that is completely dead. And this is interesting too. You'll notice that typically there's a formula. Jesus identifies himself, and then he gives a commendation of what they did well, and then he does a, does a condemnation of what they need to of what they didn't do, and then he gives the correction what they need to change, this church gets no commendation whatsoever. The church that everybody else thinks is most alive gets zero affirmation of what it's doing right. There's not one, that a boy, good works. Now, they were there. They were there because it was those, repu- those works that cr- helped create the reputation. But Jesus is saying, I don't even want to acknowledge what you think is what you're doing right. I don't even want to, there's no, I know your works, but I'm not even going to acknowledge them when I share this. There's no commendation in it. And the reason, I think the reason there's no uh, commendation is because Jesus knew that that's where they were getting their identity from. He doesn't want to reinforce the things that make them, they're feeling so good about their works and their past that Jesus doesn't want to even acknowledge them in this letter. And then we get to Philadelphia, we're going to see that there's commendation, but there's no condemnation. So let's look at Philadelphia. Verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, this is the city of brotherly love, right? The church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Uh, Just the talk about the description for a moment. There was the, the promised Messiah from the root of, of David, the, the, the son of Jesse. There was this fulfillment of that. But this verse that says, I'm going to open a door that no one can shut, is referring to that Christ is going to bring salvation in. That through Jesus, he's the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That uh, uh, John 14, 6. That when Jesus opens a way to salvation, when, when it's his, he's the door, no one can take that. Not life, nor death. No one can separate you from the love of God. God is going to do a work of salvation that no one can thwart. He's going to open the door. But then he also says he will shut a door that no one can open. Meaning that as it's appointed unto man to die, and after this the judgment, that God, that Christ is going to be a judge that his verdict, when he closes the door, it's, it's there. It's, the authority is represented that I'm the one who can open the door or close the door. I can save or I can condemn. I'm going to bring salvation or I will judge. I'm the one that can open and shut the door. I have kingdom authority. And he says in verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door. Whew. Praise the Lord which no one is able to shut, and I know that you have but little power, and you have kept my word, and you have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. The synagogue of Satan, there's a sense of these 
religious people that uh, are Jewish, supposed to be God's chosen people, uh, were going to be completely shocked and humbled when they find out who God's faithful are. They're going to be humbled, surprised. There's a picture of bowing before those that were faithful Christians, people that are loved by God, and they're going to be shocked by it. Now, why are they faithful? Verse 10, because they have kept my word about patient endurance, and I will keep them from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven. My own new name, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Sardis was a church that was dead, thought it was alive, had a reputation for being alive, but was dead. And Philadelphia was alive. And why? The short answer is because they obeyed God. That's the bottom line, that they obeyed God. And uh, I think of this, it's maybe not the best illustration or necessarily a movie that I would endorse, but there's a humorous scene in Forrest Gump. Do you remember the scene in Forrest Gump, if you've watched it, where he puts his, he puts his gun together real fast, and the drill sergeant said, Gump, why did you do that so fast? And he said, you told me to, drill sergeant. And he was like, that's the best answer I've ever heard, paraphrased. But there's, there's this sense of like, well, that's what you told me to do, so that's what I did. And there's, uh, this church is really, it's like, God told us to do it, bottom line. So we did it. We're obeying God. And uh, Philip Sardis, on the other hand, puts more stock in its reputation from the past. So here's what I want to do with the remainder of the time. I want to talk about ways, uh, I'll just throw, say this is Sardis over here and Philadelphia over here. I'm going to talk about how we as a church today, without even recognizing it, can sort of drift over here to becoming more like Sardis, a church that has a reputation for being alive and is dead. And then I want to talk about how we can drift to becoming a church like Philadelphia that is obedient and follows God in all things. So here is the first way we can drift towards Sardis, the sleeping church that was lifeless. Neglect the present to focus on the past. Listen, Sardis had an honorable reputation. They had a rich history of Christian service. I mean, there were glory days that they could reflect on and remember that God had done works in miraculous ways. And this, that's wonderful, but that can be a danger to a church. Our church is more than 100 years old, and this could be a risk for us as well. I mean, we have a rich history of giving, of service, and teaching. These are things that, uh, that are very important. And, and, and I love the past, too, and, and since I've seen God move in some miraculous ways, but here's the danger. And just also for the record, I, I've been praying that my kids could see God move in ways like I saw God move when I was a kid because I haven't seen a movement of the Spirit of God like I saw growing up. I know my kids have never been exposed to that. I'm like, man, I really want to. So I understand what it's like to want to focus on the past. And so let me just clarify. Let's celebrate it, but not idolize it. Let's celebrate the past, but not idolize it. 
So let me share a few quotes from some men I respect. This first quote is from William Barclay. It says, A church is in danger of death when it begins to worship its own past. When it's more concerned with forms than with life. When it loves systems more than it loves Jesus Christ. When it is more concerned with material than spiritual things. We need to be careful. We have a rich history. We have some wonderful teachers and preachers. and uh, We need to be careful. Uh, A.W. Tozer was one of the pastors that planted the church that became our church here in Morgantown. I mean, it, we have a rich history, and let's celebrate it, but let's not idolize it, and let's recognize that God is the factor, that He can breathe new life in it. Sometimes, though, we're so focused on what people think of us that we have a tendency to not live in the present, and we're so worried about reputation uh, I wrestled with sharing this story, but I'm going to share it, and I'm just going to trust that you'll believe the best. Uh, just when I first became the lead pastor, um, I don't know if Angela and Jake are here or traveling right now. They're not here. But uh, Angela, she, she was needing a kidney. Uh, I did their wedding. They're an awesome couple. And uh, she had, was having some, there was some trouble where she might have to go back to Africa. She was about to, she needed to be a student and there were financial issues. And long story short, we had just moved into the parsonage and we had a guest room. And I debated, uh, we were trying to find Angela a place to stay. And it's like, we had an extra room, but I was so concerned. Well, we can't, I would, used to be a college pastor and now I'm the lead pastor we can't let a college girl live with us because it'll look bad. Let not your good be evil spoken of. I know we could, we could help her out, but I don't want it to look bad to have, you know, like a, a college student living, living with us. I just want to be above reproach. And, and it was my daughter, my daughter Morgan, who said to me, uh, Daddy, what's more important, that you to appear to do what's right or that you actually do what's right? That will make you think about what you're teaching your kids. And I remember saying, man, uh, yeah, this, I guess this was, we need to do this. And, and, and I do, we, we took precautions, like I was never home alone with her, those kind of things. But we, we let her stay at our house for a couple months. And uh, the, the biggest thing that was holding me back was I was so afraid what other people might think. And sometimes if that becomes the idol, that becomes that we value image over our true identity in Christ. We value what people think of us more than we value what God knows of us is true. And again, the principle of letting not your good people spoken of, that's still in place. But sometimes we use it as an excuse not to be obedient. Another person that I respect greatly said this. There is no power in a reputation. Reputation speaks only of the past, whereas spiritual power and impact comes only in the presence from reliance on the yieldedness to the Holy Spirit. I got that from Pastor Miller. I was using his notes to study this. Yes, Pastor Miller. He's at the Chinese church this morning. But uh, I asked for his notes and... uh, uh, he has studied Revelation so much, and I saw this in his notes, and I'm like, I'm going gonna, 
I'm going to share that. And then I thought about sharing as my own, but I'm like, no, I better give him credit for it. But, uh, but it's so true. It's so true. There is no power in reputation. Reputation focuses on the past, but spiritual power and impact comes from the presence on reliance on the Holy Spirit. Uh, when we are more concerned about how we look to others than we are concerned about teaching others and reaching others, there's no, don't expect to have power. There's no power in a reputation. There's no power in how we look. The power is in the presence of God, yielding to God. And if we are so focused on the past, we're going to drift over to a lifeless, powerless church and just gripe about how it's not like it used to be. Man, these sermons hit hard, don't they? <laughs> All right, let's, let's go the other way. Let's, let's contrast with the drift towards Philadelphia. So, complete obedience to scriptures. Verse 10 says, you know, that you've kept my word. The, the Greek word is logos there. It's the sayings of God. You've kept the sayings of God, the word of God. And so, because you've kept the sayings of God, God will keep you. Uh, there's a cause and effect relationship there. You keep God's word, God's word keeps you. That's just the way God's word works. Uh, we have a tendency to do this. We pick the lifestyle that we want, and then we look for things in God's word that will reinforce or endorse, endorse the lifestyle that we want. We selectively choose the verses that we want that will endorse what we really want to do. And uh, I went to a conference couple years ago, the leadership conference, and it was powerful. And I love leadership conferences, and there's a lot of, this was for pastors and ministry leaders, and it was a couple of hours away, and it was an all-day event, different speakers, seminars, teaching, and I was looking forward to it. And uh, the beginning of the conference, one of the first things the guy did is he came outside and said, some of you are here to learn leadership development, and the truth is, you get your identity from your work, and you neglect your family's to go to church and just focus on leadership stuff. And the thing that you need to do most is right now go get in your car and go home and be a dad, be a husband. But you, need to, you need to do that. That's what you need to do. And I'm like, wow. That, that was start off a, a conference that way to suggest that. But it's true. A lot of times there are pastors I know that have sacrificed their family on the altar of ministry and the congregation loves them for it and reinforces it. And there are pastors that will draw boundaries and be good dads and husbands or so forth and be criticized because they didn't show up at the event that was being hosted or done. We need to be careful that we're completely obedient to Scripture uh, on what we're accountable for. We need to stop looking at the the log in other people's eye and check, or the beam in the other people's eye and check our own eye for things. We need, to, we need to obey what God has called us to. And there are different callings. We're all accountable to obey the revealed will of God. But sometimes God reveals specific callings on people and we need to be faithful to those callings. I, that's another topic for another time. We'll talk about God's will sometime. But I'll say it this way. Evangelistic churches love to quote the Great Commission. We'll show the Great Commission. And we love to talk about making disciples. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe some of the things that I've commanded you. Wait. 
No, that's not right. Teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. There's a sense that we are so selective in what we want to obey, when we want to obey it, that we will drift to a lifeless church. But if we want to drift to an obedient church of power, then we will, we will be people completely surrendered to obeying God. Let me, let me just say this. This is, if you want to take notes, write this down. We don't grow in our faith because we do stuff for God. We grow in our faith when we obey what God has commanded us to do. Let me say that again. You won't grow in your faith just because you do stuff for God. You'll grow in your faith when you obey what God's called you to do. Doing stuff for God is great. But don't think because you're doing stuff for God. Those, when we were at that leadership uh, training seminar, that we weren't obeying God if we neglected our families in order to do it, if we sacrificed our families in order to do that. And we could think we're growing spiritually because we're doing all the right stuff and not obeying God. And so there's a difference between good, doing good stuff and actually making sure that you have clarity on what God's called you to do and being faithful and obedient to that. Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Let me just be really brutally honest this morning, that if you aren't carrying a cross, then you are not following Christ. I don't care how much good stuff you're doing. If you're not carrying a cross, you're not following Christ. So, uh, that's obedience. We need to obey. Now, let's talk about this one more for how we drift towards Sardis. A lack of discipleship. Remember verse 2 in chapter 3 says, Wake up and strengthen what remains. There were faithful there. There were people committed to following Christ there. You all need to wake up from the past and begin to strengthen what's left there of the church that's still alive. Strengthen what remains is a call for investing in the next generation, investing in the current generation to strengthen what remains. Don't neglect investment. I just read an article that was published in, on May 8, 2019. Uh, they surveyed 2,500 church attenders, and here, here's, what, uh, here's what they found. They found that most people, they asked the question, uh, I have developed a significant relationship with people in my church. Agree or disagree? 78% said they agree out of the 2,500. 78% of people who went to church said, yes, church, some of my best friends come from church. Coming to church is an investment in relationships. Now, the other question, I intentionally spend time with other people, with other believers, to help them grow in their faith. That was less than 50%. Now, 48% said, yeah. So the majority said, yes, we love going to church because of the relationships. And yet, less than half said, but the investment in other people is not there. We love the friendships. We love the relationships. But to help someone grow spiritually is not as high a priority. Listen, I'm, I'm all for making friends. I'm not against the first statistic. I hope you make some of your best friendships here at the church. But the Great Commission isn't to go, therefore, and make friends of all nations. The Great Commission is to go make disciples. And so we have a role uh, to invest 
what we have learned from the scriptures, what God has taught us to other people. You know, and, and listen, I don't care how good your friendships are and how much scripture you can quote or how many times you come to events and go to churches. I don't care if you're here every single time the doors are open and you give me all the affirmation you want. I don't care how much money you give to the offering. I don't care all the great things that you do. If you're not investing in others, then don't, don't expect that we'll be a church that is powerful. We, we drift towards Sardis. And we can think that we're alive. But there's, I don't know how to preach otherwise. I, I didn't, I'll be honest, I've told Christy, I'm like, this whole series, I feel like I'm bashing people over the head. But I, I can't not preach what's there. And I don't know how to sidestep it. I would love to it all be encouragement this morning in... I am encouraged because if we do it, there's power in it. God's going to be faithful. But there's no plan B. There's no, there's no other direction. I can't sidestep what's clear in Scripture. And listen, parents, your kids don't need you to be their friend as much as they need you to be their discipler. They need that thought and direction. The youth ministries don't do it for you. The church doesn't do it for you. You are called to that role. That is an obedience to God when you take up that mantle of responsibility. And we are called to be uh, a people that invest in other people. So, let me, let me just talk about the last one. To drift again. So, lack of discipleship, we lift toward, drift towards Sardis. One more uh, to drift towards Philadelphia is faithful investment in service. Um, faithful investment in service. I'm talking about people who learn to discover their spiritual gifts and use them in the church. There's a sense of uh, recognizing what God has entrusted to you and being faithful with that. And when we do that, uh, I mean, if you look at this, the passage there that says, hold fast, kratio is the word there that means to be careful, to be faithful and so when he told the people that they've he've kept my word, he said, hold fast to this. I mean, being, being faithful stewards of what God has given them. There's a sense that Philadelphia was not only obeying the word, but they were being faithful with the things that God had trusted them with. That they were stewarding well. And um, that not only that, they were expecting Christ's return. So they were faithfully, they were faithfully investing in service, and there was a reward, an internal perspective with that as they as they anticipated Christ's return that made them live in a way that had power, that they were living in obedience. Uh, I get, this, is a, this is a blessing and a curse that happens to me. I think it's because I'm the pastor. But people love to share with me articles, books, sermons. Almost weekly, sometimes multiple times a week. And it's great, but I also have a list of articles, books, and sermons that I'm currently going through. And then when somebody creates the expectation of, oh, yeah, you need to read this now too, sometimes I feel stressed. I'm like, oh. And, and a lot of times it's really good. And that, that happened to me probably about uh, a month, month and a half ago. Someone sent me a sermon I just had to hear. And I'm like, oh, great, you know. After about two weeks, I was driving somewhere, and I decided I would listen to this sermon, and it really was. It was a uh, focus on the family, had the best of focus on the family, and had the testimonies of different uh, 
speakers, and one of them was Adolf Kors IV. He was the great, great grandson, if I got that right, of the, the guy who's at off course who started the Coors Brewing Company out in Colorado. And uh, his story was remarkable. I mean, this guy had everything. He had uh, wealth, fitness. He was athletic. He was this, uh, he had everything. This perfect story, but he never felt like he had anything until he surrendered to Christ and began he stepped away from all the stuff from his family's business and began to invest in kingdom work. And if you heard his story, it's like life began for him after the old life that in the world would have considered him extraordinarily successful. It was only after he kind of put that to death that he experienced a new life and service and an impact that made him feel fully alive. And so I would say that, again, we as a church, we've got to make up our mind. Are we going to drift towards Sardis? Or are we going to drift towards Philadelphia? Uh, what kind of people do we want to be? So look at, uh, look at the churches again here as we wrap up. What constitutes a dead church versus a living church? Uh, again, a living church obeys God, but the bottom line is where God breathes life. In other words, apart from God's Spirit doing a work, you'll remain dead. So... We can't determine whether we're alive or dead. We set the tone and the environment for the Holy Spirit to do a work, as we talked about in that song. Uh, God breathes life into it. We can't resurrect a dead church. But we can create loving environments that move us towards being a church that's alive. Um, it's David Lynn, who used to be the pastor here a couple years ago, uh, is district superintendent, and he posted this weekend, there was a church, New Beginnings Church up in Pennsylvania, uh, caught on fire and burnt. And uh, I was greatly encouraged by one of the quotes. Someone on Facebook, I mean, they lost most of the building. It just, a fire went through it and just damaged. Matter of fact, some people thought it was this church because Pastor Miller called me last night about 1030 asking me if the church caught on fire. I said, it's not us, we're good. But, uh, but uh, someone said, on Facebook, I'm, I think it might be one of the members of the church, but I'm not sure. But they said, the building has been damaged, but we trust the church has not. That was perspective. The building has been damaged, but I trust the church has not. Because the church is not this building, it is people. And so we can choose, are we going to be an obedient people that we're going to teach God's word, that we're not going to compromise, that we're going to yield to the Holy Spirit, and that we're going to be a people that's obedient? Or we're going to be a people that doesn't expect the return of the king, that we're self-centered, man-driven, sin-tolerating, pride-elevating, comparison-focused church, and be lifeless and powerless. We can either be a church like Sardis or like Philadelphia, but more importantly, we can be the church that God has called us to be, the Christian Missionary Alliance Church in Morgantown, yielded to the Holy Spirit, yielded to God, and expecting God to do a work that we can't do in our own strength. Let me pray. Jesus, I thank you for our church family. I thank you that we are a people and not a building. God, I pray that you would, Holy Spirit, do a work in our hearts and lives. Convict us, God, where we need to be convicted. God, help us to encourage one another and spur each other on to love and good works. 
Help us to be a people that honor you in all things. Give us your power that we can't produce in and of ourselves to have victory over sin, to see miraculous works that would honor and glorify you, not for our glory, but yours. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.